Customer experience. It's what sets some of the best companies apart from the rest, yet it can often be hard to achieve. Tune in monthly as we uncover the secrets behind great customer experience. This is Experience Better, the CX Podcast. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Experience Better, the CX Podcast. I'm your host, Alfred Sawatsky, Director of Product Management at Kubra. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about the psychology of design. Design is more than an aesthetic necessity. It influences customers' behaviors, their opinions, and their experiences. So we've brought in a colleague of mine, uh, Jamel Singleton. He's the team lead for Cooper's product design group. And uh, we're going to be able to talk about design like for hours, but we'll cut it short here for you, maybe uh, just do a normal length. But we're going to talk about the psychology of design. So, hey, Jamel, thanks for joining. Hi, Alfred. Thanks for having me. All right. So you lead Kubra's design efforts, and particularly that includes designing the user experience for products that thousands of people use. So can you tell our audience kind of what user experience means and why user experience matters for customer experience? Okay. So user experience is really about ensuring that the tools, the software, uh, the things in the world around us respond in the way we sort of expect them to. Okay, get right down to it. How is a business going to make money uh, doing this? Right. So at a sort of basic understanding or basic level, uh, what we're doing is improving customer satisfaction by making interfaces that are pleasant to look at, pleasant to use, easy to use, and accessible for users. Um, we use a, a lot of different tools. Um, we use a lot of design thinking to help get us there. Uh, being empathetic and thinking about how the user may be using these tools and what type of interactions they're looking to achieve um, and making sure um, making sure these things, again, work the way they expect them to work. So the ultimate goal we're trying to achieve is we want to improve customer satisfaction. And with that comes improving customer loyalty and brand loyalty. Uh, if we create beautiful, in beautiful interfaces that a customer uh, enjoys looking at and using and interacting with, if they're able to achieve their goals, that brings them back to us again to use our products. Uh, at a high level, just doing that makes it so that, you know, our products next to another customer or, or competitor's products stand out. You know, they look better or they work better. Uh, that helps bring customer satisfaction and brings more money because our products can be chosen over the others. In other ways, it can be, you know, uh, our products being better or working better encourages our clients to perhaps pay more for the products that we produce. Uh, I can give you a really interesting anecdote I had. Um, mm -hmm. So we're talking about business and how it helps businesses. There are ways in which not having good user experience can hurt a business or uh, it can severely damage a business. So this example is from 1979. Uh, the Three Mile Nuclear Generating Station in Pennsylvania was going into meltdown. And so the crew in the control room went to work on trying to fix this problem. And the method by which you do this is you grab a bunch of manuals and they're these huge three ring binders and, you know, mm -hmm. your nuclear reactor is going to meltdown. You've got this binder and you're trying to sit at your desk and go through the instructions for how to stop this meltdown. Um, Meanwhile, there are, there's wall after wall of lights and buzzers 
all pinging and blinking and buzzing at the same time. 600 lights. Sounds really overwhelming. Really overwhelming. So if you can imagine, you know, you're in the middle of a meltdown. It is the worst possible thing you can have happen at your day of work. Mm -hmm. And you have all of this going on around you. It's like a disco. And meanwhile, you're trying to concentrate on this manual and understand how you can shut this down and how you can stop it. Ultimately, uh, the engineers designed this not being empathetic about the people who would be using it and what kind of situation they would be in when they were actually using it. You know, if you've, you've got this meltdown happening and you have all these flashing lights and things, you're not going to be able to concentrate or be calm or be rational. And in the end, what they found is there was just a bad user interface element. So I've never operated a nuclear power plant, mm -hmm. but I can, I can relate to what you're uh, saying. So um, my background is engineering. So what we're talking about is knowing, knowing who your audience is, right? So right. my background is engineering. And when I first got into software development, kind of the approach we took is we, we went out and we gathered requirements, wrote them down, we wrote some document. We all hated writing documentation, but we did it anyways. Mm -hmm. wrote, a, wrote a design document and then started coding. And it's like, oh yeah, this will be easy. We can, uh, you know, just make a graphical user interface, put a widget here, a widget there. It all makes sense, right? So it turns out we had very responsive, you know, maybe backend databases or APIs, application programming interfaces. But the front end looked like it was not very well thought out. And I, I know it wasn't thought out because we would build all this stuff and then we'd, we'd go to the user testing where we handed it off to the user and say, like to the customer and say, can you test this? And they'd say, well, this isn't what we wanted. It's like, oh, but, but, but it's in the document. Well, yeah, but you just used words. You didn't actually show us what it looked like. And, and I know some of that um, you know, can be addressed by different methodologies like agile and stuff. And maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, the main thing there was the target audience was us engineers. We knew how we would use it. And it all made sense to me. It all made sense to us. Um, and I think many of us have seen apps or websites like that. So you described a, a really great example at three, at three Mile. There was all the documentation it was written by engineers, probably four engineers, and um, made perfect sense to the author, but not to the actual user. So um, if, if, if you were going to instead introduce user experience design into a process like uh, to fix the Three Mile nuclear thing or to fix these software examples that I gave, now, can you step us through how would you approach um, maybe introducing some user experience, UX type of process into it? Okay. So ultimately what my team's goal is, is to not just do the design work. Um, you know, we can create the wireframes, we can create mock-ups, we can do things to oh, help. can I interrupt you? So sure. can, you, can you give a little explanation of what a wireframe is or a mock-up? Oh, sure. Yeah, so wireframes are simple diagrams that break down how a product or a piece of software would be laid out. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of can show things like, here's where the buttons are going to sit, here's where various interface elements are going to live. We can actually have the, the proper dialogue or descriptions, button names, anything we need to get the idea across you know, this is what this interface is going to look like, or this is how this interface is going to function. Mm -hmm. Mockups, on the other hand, are much closer to what the actual product will look like. This is a visual visualization with all of the colors, branding, any design elements that you'd see on the final product. And so my team uh, does create both of those things, along with uh, we do user research and we do some testing and we do some of what you're talking about where 
we actually talk to users or we talk to clients and get their opinions on the work we're doing. But before that, the thing we really try to focus on is trying to evangelize the idea of design thinking within our organization or within our client's organization. So we want to sit down with them and we want to talk to them about uh, the strategy or the research they've done or research they may still need to do about how this thing is going to work, why they're putting it on the market, what it needs to accomplish. And then once we have that initial research, we start talking to them about the process, about the design, what we think we want to do, and we get their opinions. We want to have them engage. We want them to participate. It's really important that my team is not the sole arbiter of what or how design is going to happen in an organization. It really, really is important, and it really helps if we can get everybody on the team involved. If we can get everybody thinking about design or thinking about user empathy, then we can make really, really great products because you know we can't catch everything. And most importantly, we can't be everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't know someone's perspective uh, unless you can talk to them and ask them questions or have them participate in a conversation so that you can understand where they're coming from and you can apply that to the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more more important than anything, always design thinking first. Design thinking. So what, some of what you described um, just made me think about. I mean, so so it sounds like you're you're helping you know obviously design the product in this case or a process, but in a lot of org- organizations we also have a role of a product manager or product owner. Mm-hmm. So how can you say more about how how a, a UX design team? works together with a product manager or they complement each other or where there's possibilities of overlap? Can you just cover, touch that a bit? Sure. Uh, so with the product manager, they usually have the initial concept or idea for what's being created, whether it's a full-on product or we're just adding a feature. And the first meeting or the first conversation with the product manager is usually to, just like we would do with a customer or a consumer, we would want to have a conversation about what they're trying to accomplish, why, and then we start talking about all the different ways we could accomplish it. The product manager might have a pretty good idea of what they think they would like to build, and it's up to me and my team to bring our experience about users and how users interact, uh, bring previous research we have or previous information to the conversation, and help them flesh out this idea a little bit more. we sort of look into the dark corners and look for any potential problems or issues that could crop up. And we also help to visualize what it is the product manager is hoping to build. We want to paint them a picture so that they can see more clearly whatever the concept or feature is and be able to address any concerns or make changes to the overall designer structure before we actually introduce it to engineering and start planning out a build. Okay, so you've mentioned a, a bit about uh, getting feedback from the customers and kind of presenting a picture to the product manager. I'm I'm curious to know how do you get the information from users or potential users, and how do you distill that into something that you know um, is not is doesn't just include your biases, but actually is what the the consumer wants. That's a really good question, and it's, it's a tough balancing act to because we all have. Um, Everyone has their own goals when they're working on a product or 
uh, a concept or feature. You know, you have your personal preferences and it can be difficult to not push those on the product or feature you're working on. But the idea is really to talk to as many people as you can and get as many opinions as you can so that, A, you can refine and you can um, really make sure your assumptions are correct. And B, so that, you know, if your assumptions are wholly wrong, you can have someone tell you. And there are many different ways to get there. You know, uh, I've done user testing where we've told everyone in the room that we didn't create the product they're looking at, or we have no involvement so that they can feel free to tell us that it's terrible or, you know, it's trash or whatever they, they want to say about it. Um, but it lets them, it frees them up to give us a real opinion and it helps us to get the information or the key details about what we've done wrong or where we have failed on this product so that we can make adjustments and start to change whatever assumptions or ideas or preconceptions we may have had going into a new build. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, I've heard some buzzwords floating around. Um, so I'm going to throw some out and you can, uh, give a definition. So let's say cognitive load. What's that? Uh, cognitive load. Uh, I'm going to explain that as I'm going to give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, so a cognitive load is taking all the information you're gathering from point A to point B and trying to store it. And so the way I like to always explain that is you walk into a building or you walk into a house and as you're going through that building or house, you're mentally taking note of where the entrance was, how you came in. You're taking note of, you know, you turned down this hallway or you entered this room and you walked down another hallway. All of this is being stored. Uh, you're not actually putting any effort into this information being stored. It's just happening. Your brain automatically is doing this. And so cognitive load or, or this sort of practice works the same when you're using an interface. You land on an interface, you're on the home screen, you go to the About Us page. Uh, oftentimes you'll find that users will always go back home first. It's the same way that if you enter an unfamiliar space, you might go to the first room you walked back, walked into to sort of reset and understand where you started from so that you know how to get back there. So, you know, you go to about, you go home, you go to contact, you go home, you go to mission statement, you go home. It's all to reduce the amount of cognitive load or the amount of information your brain is storing about how you navigate it from point A to point B. So are you saying a user doesn't want to think? Well, don't, don't make me think. More importantly, the user doesn't know they're thinking. And so what you want to do is you want to make sure that all of that information they're storing about your interface is not spilling over and they're losing bits of information along the way. You want to make sure that you don't fill that bucket of, you know, navigation and approach to the interface. You don't overfill it before you get them to whatever it is they're looking for. So if their goal is to make a payment, you don't want them bouncing all over the site looking for make a payment before they finally reach it. Because by the time they get there, the next time they come to your site, they're going to have no idea how to get there again because all of that information, all that cog cognitive load has caused, caused a bit of a short circuit. And it, it's created a situation where they're not going to be able to remember the steps they need to take to repeat that process. So in your earlier, so in your early example of the three mile a nuclear station meltdown, that was an extreme uh, example of cognitive load and maybe cognitive 
overload um, where it became really hard to for the for the users to know what to do or how to find the information. So it s- seems to me that uh, simplicity or simplification might be something that is that something you look at? I mean, I've heard some designers say we, everything has to be done in three clicks or less. I mean, mm-hmm. can you speak a bit about simplification? Yeah, there's there's a number of ways we try to simplify our interfaces. One is we'll try to what we call chunk tasks. We'll take we'll take your tasks and we will divide them into separate chunks so that you can do bits at a time and digest each piece each piece of the each piece of the task and get a clear understanding of you know, what it is you achieved or you accomplished before you move on to the next one. And again, going back to cognitive load, it's taking what's being stored and moving it into memory before you move on to the next thing. So we can take a task like, uh, a good example might be making a payment. So if you go to a, a, a mobile app or a website and you go to make a payment, we'll have different tasks related to payments, but we'll block them out so that you're doing one at a time. You arrive at the site, you need to make a payment, you start the process, but you may not have any sort of funding or payment source set up. Maybe you don't have a bank account or a credit card set up. So we will break that task off and send you over to the wallet where you can create a payment source, and then we bring you back to make a payment. Um, and we're we're typically trying to break any flow or any task up into two separate flows so that you can always remember and understand you know, how this started and how you finished so that you can move on to the other. So you set up your funding source, you go back to make a payment, and then you're able to complete and process that payment. Yeah, that sounded like if I think about it now, you had like three different steps. I mean, it's it's easy to remember, and I, as a user, won't even have to remember it. It just, it just becomes obvious. Um, so I want to talk more about effort to do this design. So I, I could see a designer looking at this and iterating and iterating and iterating and iterating and never quite be, you know, and the engineers are itching and they're saying, just give me the thing I could have got done in, in a weekend. And we know that that's not necessarily true. But I mean, at what point do you just say enough is enough? This is a, this is quite usable. Like, is there a score or a metric or a rules of thumb or what do you do to, to know that that's good enough? In a word, it depends. Oh, great. Yeah. So just like anything, you you have budgets, you have timelines, you have things that will prevent you from, you know, just iterating and iterating and iterating, like you said. Uh, you may have a timeline crunch that prevents you from doing extensive user testing. What my team will generally do if we find ourselves in that situation is do hallway testing, uh, which is the practice of getting friends, family, coworkers to look at these interfaces do the same sort of surveys and and give us the same sort of feedback we would from the general public. Uh, that's a very quick and easy way. Um, you can just grab somebody in the lunchroom, whatever you need to do to get that done so that you can kind of squeeze that process in and make sure it still happens. Uh, there's also, you know, sometimes we have situations where, you know, we can't spend time working on mock-ups. So we'll focus more on the wireframe portion because the backbone or the skeleton of any software product or feature is how it's going to function. People think about design and they think about designers and my team and more often than not, they assume that our job is just to make it pretty. But more importantly, we want to make sure that it's functional, that it works the way you expect it to work. Going back to the experience portion of it, you know, you 
we want this thing. If you're going to make a payment, we want you to hit the make a payment button and move through that flow and be able to success, successfully do this thing. Uh, it doesn't matter as much if it's pretty, if it doesn't actually perform the way you expect it to. So um, making sure that it functions is really important. And so we may just do wireframes and skip the mock-up portion and, you know, cross our fingers and mm -hmm. hope that it comes out looking okay. Uh, so focusing on the most core steps of the process is our primary goal. And if we have to cut things out, usually it will be the things that won't have as big, a, big an impact on the overall product functionality or success. Mm -hmm. um, design, uh, research, that kind of stuff starts to go away. Yeah, so that that's great talking about some of the the main components there. What what you can cut out? Is there any kind of like metric or score you can look at in a design? Say, okay, I've reached this threshold, and now I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Sure. So we have uh, the SUS score or um, the system user score, and the way this works is we can pull a fairly large group of group of people and have them take a survey after they use one of our products. And this survey will help us decide or define how successful we were at building this product, making it functional and making it work as, it, as it's expected to. And the scoring generally, uh, I think if you get 75 or higher, you're doing really good. Um, anything lower than that, you probably need to go back and look at the process or look at what you're doing. That's great. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time. And I was just wondering if there's any uh, last bits of advice or tips you wanted to share uh, with our listeners. Uh, for example, the, the one I'm interested in hearing about is, let's say, say I'm a, I'm a team leader and I'm thinking, hey, Jamel, you've sold me on this uh, user experience design. Like, it's really important. But I'm part of a group that has no formal uh, UX design group. What are some things that I could do? Like, what are some things that I could do as a quick win to like nudge my team culture towards UX design thinking? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh... I think the best place to start is just to start talking about design, start talking about interaction and empathy. If you start talking about these things, learning about these things and sort of spreading the word and evangelizing the ideas of design thinking, you can start to build within your organization, uh, a group of people who consider these ideas and they bring these ideas up as you're planning or building out different products and features. And just having people thinking about these things will help you start to, to figure out and catch issues or problems in whatever structure or workflow you have currently. Mm -hmm. um, it, it always helps to have people thinking whether or not they're trained or they have experience in design. Just thinking about the problem is the first step to start building and creating something new. Well, that's great. Um, those are great examples. It was uh, it was wonderful chatting with you, and we could go on, I'm sure, for like hours and hours. But I, I appreciate the um, kind of the tips and uh, kind of the, the the high level psychology you've you've introduced, the stories you brought, uh, the ideas that you've given about what people can do to um, nudge their teams to to more design thinking. So thanks again, Jamel, for uh, joining us here today, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Of course, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. On our next episode, we'll dive into artificial intelligence to uncover how AI chatbots are changing customer expectations. And we'll talk about why your company is missing out if it doesn't have one. That's all for Experience Better, the CX podcast. 
If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us your questions and continue the conversation with us on Twitter or Facebook at KubraWay. That's K-U-B-R-A-W-A-Y or on LinkedIn at Kubra. Experience Better, the CX podcast is presented by Kubra. I'm your host, Alfred Sawaski. Goodbye for now. I hope you experience better. <laughs>